So Holy Spirit, help us to think about those words from Scripture, know how they apply to our lives, and help us to come out of here more focused on you and what you do. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Hello to all of you. Merry Christmas. Glad to see all of you here. I have to say, I really like that jazz version of God Rest You. I wish I was a musician, don't you? I, then I wouldn't be a preacher. I'd be a musician. <laughs> Recently, my wife and youngest daughter had a chance to be in a TV show, which they were really excited about. Problem was, it was set in a Canadian prairie town in the 1800s. So when my wife told the producer that she's Chinese and our daughter is half Chinese, he said, well, I don't think I can work that into the script. Nothing against Chinese people, it's just there weren't any Chinese people in Canadian prairie towns back then. So my wife said, well, well, you could just show the back of our heads, or she even said, I could wear a bear costume and be an animal. <laughs> right? And the guy finally said, you know, maybe another show. When we told my daughter, her response was, stupid prairie people. <laughs> okay, it's not their fault, right? It's just history. So they're going to have to wait for their moment of fame. I think many of us can relate in a way to my wife and daughter. We all want exciting things in our lives, like being on TV. We want to make a mark, leave a name for ourselves. We want to know that we are making a difference. And in our culture, we often tend to think of those things as happening through the big things that we do. You know, we start a nonprofit that saves Africa, or, or we, we lead a company, or something like that. And that's how we find meaning and purpose and adventure. And often, Jesus does work through those things. Often he does. And following Jesus is an adventure. But Jesus always, not just often, but always uses the little things, the daily things, to bring us meaning, adventure, purpose, joy, and uses us to make a difference. This Advent, we're looking at holiday movies and what they reveal about Christmas. And last time, we looked at a recent movie called Elf, And today I want to look at an older movie. Some younger folks may not have seen it. It's A Wonderful Life, made in 1946. And it's about a man named George Bailey who wants to escape the podunk little town that he lives in called Bedford Falls to travel the world, do big things, make a name for himself. But one thing after another traps him in Bedford Falls. His dad dies, so he he ends up running their crummy little building and loan business that lends money to poor people so that they can get a house. He gets married, has a pack of kids. Meanwhile, his younger brother, who George saved from drowning when they were kids, goes off and becomes a war hero, gets to meet the president, all while George is trapped in Bedford Falls. And then George's Uncle Billy loses a bunch of money, and so George is going to go to jail for embezzlement. Every year I watch this movie, every year I sit there and mutter, stupid Uncle Billy, I don't like Uncle Billy. My kids don't like Uncle Billy either. Uncle Billy is bad. And so George feels like his life has just been a waste, right? Like, like none of his dreams have happened, and, and, and he says, I just wish I'd never been born. But then an angel steps in who's trying to earn his wings, which is just terrible theology. So just, like, ignore that part because it's just awful theology, and it's, it's kind of corny. In fact, this movie was directed by Frank Capra, so critics dismissed it as Capricorn. I know, that was hard. I know, I like that movie. But, you know, it's got some corny parts. But it's actually, if you kind of leave those out, it's actually an exceedingly dark. It's a very dark movie about a man who is bitterly disappointed with his life. And I wonder, do you ever feel like life hasn't turned out the way you'd hoped? So the angel gives George a a vision of what life would have been like for everyone else if he'd never been born. 
And so all those people who got houses because of him, they're still in poverty. The town is filled with debauchery because George wasn't there to run the building and loan, which kept the evil Mr. Potter from owning the whole town. And you can see the main point of the film in this one clip I'm going to show you. It's, it's got some dated stuff, but, but, but it makes a good point. Take, take a look. All I know is this should be Bailey Park. But where are the houses? You are here to build them. Your brother, Harry Bailey, broke through the ice and was drowned at the age of nine. That's a lie. Harry Bailey went to war. He got the Congressional Medal of Honor. He saved the lives of every man on that transport. Every man on that transport died. Harry wasn't there to save them because you weren't there to save Harry. You see, George, you really had a wonderful life. Don't you see what a mistake it would be to throw it away? Clarence. Yes, George? Where's Mary? Oh, well, I, I, I can't... Uh... I don't know how you know these things, but tell me, where is she? I'm if you not... know where she is, tell me where my wife is. I'm not supposed to tell. Please, Clarence, tell me where she is. You're not going to like it, George. Where is she? She's an old maid. She never married. Where's Mary? Where is she? She's... Where is she? She's just about to close up the library. There must be some easier way for me to get my wings. My kids think that's hilarious. She's locking up the library. Fate worse than death. I, like, oh no. The point is, even though George lives in this rundown house, doesn't have a lot of money, never became famous, he had a wonderful life. You know, we often look for God at work in our lives in the big things, the new job finding a spouse, getting into the college we want. And God does work in those things. But what really gives us a wonderful life is the way God works in all those daily, ordinary things. Our friendships, reconciling with someone you're angry at, loving our kids, helping others, following Jesus. As choice by choice, we build a life just like brick by brick you build a building. All those little things add up to a wonderful life. With hardship, for sure, disappointment and setback, absolutely, but a life also filled with fun and friendship and meaning, purpose, joy, and adventure out of the little things. And the Christmas story makes this just crystal, crystal clear. In the Gospel of Luke, it starts this way. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree, a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. So Joseph went up from Nazareth and Galilee to Judea to pay his taxes. And here's the thing about that. History is usually written about kings and emperors. So the first readers of this passage would have been shocked that we blow right past Caesar Augustus, the emperor, the most powerful man in the world, blow right past him, focus down on these two poor peasants, Mary and Joseph. That's where the action is. That's the adventure in the ordinary stuff. Even their names, Mary, Joseph, Jesus, the most common ordinary names of the day. They were the John Browns and Jane Doe's of biblical names. Right? So the way back then that you would tell all those Marys and Josephs and Jesus apart was by saying where they came from. So Jesus of Nazareth. Only in his case, it didn't help. Because in all the lists back then of towns in Israel, no one ever lists Nazareth. Because it was so small, nobody even knew where it was. Sort of like, how many of you know where Prescott, Washington is? It's a suburb of Waitsburg. That should help you out. 
right, on the way to Dayton. Okay, there are about four times, five times more people in this room than live in Prescott. That was Nazareth. So to say Jesus of Nazareth was like, didn't help. Who from what? Huh? What? You see the same kind of thing happening in the very first chapter of the New Testament. Very first chapter is a list of Jesus' ancestors. Some of them are famous, like King David or Solomon. But then there are other people on that list, like Abihud, Zadok. When was the last time you heard a good Zadok story? Right? We know nothing about these people at all, but every obscure name on that list represents someone who raised a family, had friends, contributed to their community, all without fanfare, and yet they are still a part of God's redemption drama. Their faithfulness led to Jesus. Jesus works in all those little things, the aggregate of which adds up to a wonderful life. Again, you see it in the Christmas story in the character of Joseph. He's kind of a behind-the-scenes guy. At no point in the story does Joseph ever talk. You know, in a Christmas play, even the animals get more attention than Joseph. But his life is a sermon that shows that a wonderful life is the aggregate of a thousand daily decisions around a couple of themes I want to list very briefly. The first, for a wonderful life, we got to do the right thing even if it's hard. Jesus' story is nothing but scandalous. From start to middle to finish, scandal, scandal, scandal. That list of ancestors I talked about includes four scandalous women with a bad reputation, yet they are part of Jesus' ancestry. And then, after chapter 1, you dive right into chapter 2, and we get Mary, who is pregnant and unmarried, which in that culture would bring shame not just on Mary, but on Joseph as her fiancé. Ah, couldn't control your woman, could you, Joseph? Weren't enough for her, were you? But Joseph takes on that scorn and takes on that scandal when he sticks with her. And you can only imagine how that first conversation went down, right? Like, I always imagine, how did this, I mean, what did she say? You know, hey, Joe, kind of a good news, bad news thing here. You know, I'm pregnant, but I'm still a virgin, and the baby is God's. Anyway, how was your day, dear? Right? Like, that was just must have been a moment for both of them. And, you know, in our culture, we tend to ask questions around things like that, like, what's in it for me? And you got to do what's right for you. That was not Joseph's question. His question was, what is the right thing to do, the honorable thing to do, even if it's hard? Now, you got to be careful not to reverse that. It's hard, therefore it must be the right thing, right? You know, God hates me, so if the hard thing must be what he wants me to do. No, 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 not always. Okay, well then how do I know what the right thing to do is? Well, you know, it's kind of simple actually. You know, is it honest? Does it honor and empower people? What does the Bible say about it? Ask the Holy Spirit to help guide you. And then, then when we do the right thing, the rewards are nowhere to be found, <laughs> usually. At least at first, in Joseph's immediate reward was shame and scandal. But over time, the benefits add up. He got to be the adopted, adoptive father of God himself in human flesh. Like, that's cool, right? I mean, fortunately, it didn't go to his head because that could be kind of a power trip, right? Getting to tell God when to go to bed, right? But kind of a cool assignment in life. When we do the right thing over time, our relationship with spouses and kids are fun, are more fun. We have more self-respect. We have more friends who then have our back when we do the right thing. So spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the movie, the way George gets out of his financial crisis is all those people he's helped over the years give him as much money as they can spare to bail him out in gratitude for everything he's done for them. 
It's one of my favorite lines in the movies where one woman comes up and says to him, I've been saving this money for a divorce if I ever got married, but here, you can have it. <laughs> right generous of her, don't you think? Right? Their gift to him is the harvest of all the hard but right things he's done. Second thing we learn from Joseph is that he prioritized God and what God was teaching him. The text says Joseph was faithful to the law. Hebrew word there means he had a reputation for uncompromising obedience, which brings him a dilemma, because according to his religious culture of the day, he should have Mary stoned to death as an adulteress. But he couldn't bring himself to do it. So at first he decides to divorce her quietly, but he didn't stop there. The text continues. But after he had considered this, right, that is he's wrestling with it. He's asking God, what are you teaching me? Then the angel shows up and says, it's okay, Joseph. It's God's son. You can stick with her. It's all okay. Question, why didn't that stupid angel show up sooner? Spare Joseph all of that trauma, all of that anxiety. Well, you know what? Maybe anxiety removal was not God's number one goal for Joseph or for you or for me. Maybe it was to make him wrestle with his religiosity so that he could learn what God was doing, making him struggle with all that. And Joseph then begins to understand the heart of God better. The angel says this, you're going to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means God saves. See, God is helping Joseph see the good news that Jesus brings, that we are made right with God, not through our own righteousness, which Joseph leaned on very heavily, right? But we are made right with Jesus through his death on the cross that pays the price for our sins. Joseph learns about grace. So if you're confused right now, or if, if you're uncertain about something, it, it might not be that you've done something wrong or, or anything. It might just be that you're about to grow. And what Joseph did that was right was he wasn't so busy trying to build the big thing that he missed what God was teaching him in his daily struggles. God showed him big things through little things. And then the third thing Joseph does that gives him a wonderful life is he prioritized relationship. The text says that he gave him the name of Jesus. By naming him Joseph, it's a legal act that Joseph is doing, a legal act publicly adopting Jesus as his son. There was no resentment that said, he's not mine, so never mind, right? He embraced Jesus, loved him, taught him his own trade of carpentry, right? And maybe part of why Jesus had a heart for, for disrespected people like prostitutes and tax collectors is that he was raised in a family that was marked by scandal and raised by a dad who sacrificed his respectability, his reputation for the sake of his wife and his son. And you got to believe that as Jesus worked beside Joseph in that carpenter's shop, Joseph was teaching Jesus life lessons about perseverance and hard work and all kinds of things through the daily tasks of hammering a nail or building a, a table. You know, I sometimes think that in heaven, Jesus is going to say to us, I want to show you your finest moment of your life, the best moment of your life. And we're going to think maybe it's kind of like when I took the company public or led some giant ministry or whatever, or that great speech you gave your kids that one time when your kids looked at you with tears in their eyes and said, thank you, mom. Thank you, dad. This speech has changed my life forever. Remember when that happened? <laughs> of course you don't, because it never did. <laughs> but when Jesus says, here was your finest moment, it'll probably be some moment we don't remember at all. When we help someone at work or a niece or a nephew invested in someone in some way, right, a friend, and we don't remember it at all. But God does. Last week I was 
telling my kids that when I was six years old, I wrote a short little essay called What Christmas Means to Me. And, and my hometown newspaper, the Tri-City Herald in Richland, Washington, published my little six-year-old essay. I thought they'd be inspired. My youngest said, yeah, but Richland is a really small town, and that's just the best they could do. <laughs> Harsh. Harshness, right? And, th and then my son said, yeah, I bet it was a really cheesy essay. I bet dad said things like, Christmas means family and Jesus and puppies. And I'm like, Christmas is going to mean no presents for you. <laughs> my kids, our friends, folks out there, they aren't really going to be impressed. They're not really going to love us because of our six-year-old essays or our achievements or our titles. It's really going to be the sum total of those daily decisions that makes a wonderful life. So what hard but right thing maybe do you need to do right now? Even if you haven't been doing, you don't feel you've been doing the right thing, you know, it's never too late to start. How can you pay attention to what God is teaching you in the little things of your life? Even traffic or standing in line at the mall. And how can you invest in others? What are the seeds you're sowing now, the harvest of which you will reap in years to come? And, you know, as we go through life, these little things, it is really hard to see what God is doing. It is, you know, a movie makes it kind of easy to see, but it is really hard to see as you're going through life. In the middle of it, how these little things are adding up to anything wonderful at all. just seems like a string of them. So maybe ask a friend to help you reflect on that. Or better yet, ask Jesus, who I think every once in a while really does pull back the curtain of our lives and allows us to see how all these little things adding up to something amazing. So let me tell you how he has done that for me recently. This fall has been a bit of a season of loss for me. As, as you know, Dick Leon, my predecessor here, he died unexpectedly, and he was a very important mentor and spiritual father for me. And then as I've shared, uh, the man who has been, was my college pastor, my lifelong mentor, his name is Steve, most influential person of my life. He has mentored me for 35 years. He's dying of cancer. Well, earlier this fall, I went to see Steve in Atlanta where he lives and was able to spend a morning with him. And one of the things he said that struck me was he said, I've always wanted to be faithful to the call, whatever it was, and now my call is to die, and I want to be faithful. And even there, I thought, wow, he is asking God, what are you teaching me? So we caught up, we talked theology, we reminisced. I, you know, at one point I said, I am not ready for you not to be my mentor. And he said, well, I'm not ready to not be your mentor, but I don't have a choice. And eventually, it was time for me to go. And, and, you know, when I was in college, our college group met on Tuesday nights, and we'd have communion. And he would read the end of Romans 8 every single Tuesday. What can separate us from the love of God? Not height, nor depth, nor life, nor death. Every Tuesday. And I said, Steve, I, all these years later, I can still hear your voice reading these verses, and I want to read them to you now. Which I did. And then I prayed for him. And then he said, I have something I want to read you. And it was an email from a friend of his. And the friend wrote, Steve, my favorite memory of you was one time at a conference when we had to do a trust walk, which tells me this was happening in the 70s. And, and you were blindfolded. <clears throat> and I guided you with my voice through a forest with logs and thorns and things that so easily trip and entangle. And I brought you to the edge of that forest. And you couldn't see where you were, but I knew that you were at the edge of a broad, wide meadow. And so I told you to run as fast as you could. And even though you were still blindfolded, you ran with your arms waving, yelling in freedom and joy. And this, my friend, is your journey now. You are almost through the forest with the logs and thorns and things that so easily trip and entangle. And you stand at the edge of a broad, wide meadow. 
And the word made flesh goes before you and behind you as he always has. And all will be well. And all manner of things shall be well. He read that to me and, and I said, amen. And then I said, I will never see you again this side. But I have one request. That you are on my welcoming committee when I get there. And he said, it is a date. And that's how I said goodbye to the most influential person in my life. Now, we've texted, we'll talk, but I'm not going to see him again in person. But the day didn't end there. Later that night, I got together with two men, good friends of mine. I've known them for a long time. It was a warm night in Atlanta, no bugs, which in itself was a miracle. And we sat on the patio of this pub for four and a half hours, telling funny stories, laughing, but also asking each other, no, how are you really doing? Really? How are you doing? One of the guys named Ryan is someone I mentored when I was in California and he was in college. And the other guy was named Shondor and Ryan had mentored him. And at one point they said to me, Scott, we love Steve because of what he gave you that you gave to us. And then they listed some of those things. And I could see four generations of mentors. Steve to me, me to Ryan, Ryan to Shondor. And through us all, Steve's legacy is going to live on for a long time. And so we celebrated Steve's life. Then we told some more funny stories, and we laughed, and we shut that pub down. It was one of the hardest days of my life. It was one of the best days of my life. You know, of the roughly 29,000 days we have on this earth, you only remember a few. I will remember that one until the day I die because it was filled with what really makes a wonderful life. Fun and joy and sorrow and good friends and good memories and goodbyes. But it didn't happen in that one night. It was the culmination of years. 35 years in the case of Steve and me. 16 in the case of my friends and me. Six, all those years. A thousand conversations. Many I don't remember. A thousand decisions and revisions that we made together. And, 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 and you know, to do the right thing, to invest in each other, to invest in others, figure out what God is teaching us. All those times, Steve had to put up with my whining and my worrying, 35 years of Dudley. Good Lord, who could stand all that, right? He had to put up with all of it, all those years. But not just the conversations, the things we did together. My friends and I, we built ministries together. We had fun together. Ski trips, river rafting. Some people like to golf. Fortunately, we never did that. And some of that I remember, and most of it I don't, but it all led to that amazing conversation with my mentor, that amazing night with good friends. Jesus pulled back the curtain, and I could see the culmination of so many little things adding up to a wonderful life. And so even though it was hard, I could honestly say, it is well with my soul. That is Christmas. It is the greatest story ever told. It changed history, and yet it bypassed the rich and the famous and comes through ordinary people, leading ordinary lives, doing ordinary things in a very oh-so-ordinary place. Jesus steps into an ordinary barn, and suddenly it is the stuff of art and song, and it changes the world. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. Because when Jesus steps into your ordinary, it really does become a wonderful life. So Jesus, thank you that you do that. Thank you that that's the promise of Christmas. You take what is so ordinary and you make it so extraordinary. Lord, help us to hear you, what you're doing in our lives as we go through it. Pull back the curtain. Help us to see the way all those little things add up as we walk with you. Come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. Amen.